0: Hey, this is Lee Snow, the preacher for the Warm Springs Road Church of Christ here in Columbus, Georgia, and you have found our podcast. We hope that this message inspires you, that it equips you, and that it builds your faith in Jesus Christ like never before. If you have any questions or you want to tell us your story, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out at any time. We are here for you. We're here for each other. Most importantly, we're here for the Lord. chapter 3. That's where we're going to start our study this morning. Acts chapter 3. In John 13, 35, Jesus said that his disciples would be known to the world by the love that they showed for one another. And then in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, when speaking about false teachers and false prophets, really uh, the, the idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing, he says that you're going to know them by their fruits. And the, the, the implication is that also that, that we will be known by our fruits. The, um, it, it hasn't happened yet, but the same thing that would happen to Jesus would, would eventually happen to uh, the early Christians. You see, Christ, Jesus got typecast into just a healer, and to the point that you'll read numerous times where he's trying to do one thing and everybody just wants him to heal and and he can't focus on what he needs to do. And so uh, that's one of the instances where the crowd is pressing on him and, and he miraculously just leaves and appears in another location because because of that. Or um, And they get in a boat and they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and the people follow them to the other side in order to to get healing, It hasn't happened to the, to the Christians, to the apostles in the book of Acts and Acts chapter 3. But eventually it would happen because of what happens in Acts 3 and really a couple more times throughout, uh, throughout the book of Acts. So when you pick up Acts 3, what we talked about in, in our Bible class this morning, the lame beggar being healed. You have this man who is laid daily, verse 2 of Acts 3, at the gate of the temple... That's called the beautiful gate, or it's the one that's on the side. It's not really the main entrance to the temple, but it's one of the ones that, that, the, that the Jews would have used very, very regularly. He's laid there. He's not the only one that's laid there, but nonetheless, verse 3, he, he sees Peter and John going into the temple. He asks if they can give him some money, and Peter says, um, verse number 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting... To receive something from them, but Peter said, "I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk." The first really person-to-person miracle that's happening in the Book of Acts. In Acts two, after the Holy Spirit comes on them, they have a miracle. They're able to speak in tongues that they've never learned, that in languages that they've never that they've never learned or or even heard, for the most part, I would guess. They have that miracle, but that miracle is just them, the Holy Spirit working through them and people are hearing them. That's not, it's not a person-to-person miracle. But then in Acts 3, the first person-to-person miracle happens where Peter heals this man, this lame beggar, at the, the beautiful gate. So he tells him, rise up and walk. He t- took his right hand, raised him up. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him; they they knew who he was because, I mean, if you see the same person over and over and over again, you know at least who they are. And I have an example of that, but sadly, I don't I don't know his name. There's a there's a man downtown in Uptown. You know, you have to call it Uptown now because, for some reason I don't know, people get mad if you call it Downtown. Anyways, in Downtown Columbus, Uptown, whatever you want to call it. There's a man who lives at the Ralston. I, I think his name starts with a J, and I'm so bad with names that I can never remember it. But I recognize him. I see him every time I'm down there. If I, if I go down there for a meeting, or I go down there for, for something else, or Rebecca and I go down for uh, market days, or, or anything like that, he's always out, and everyone knows who he is, and everyone, everyone who works down there and lives down there, of course, know him pretty well. It's the same kind of concept. This guy is at this gate every single day. Everyone knows who he is and everyone knows that he is not able to walk. Well, then all of a sudden, he walks into the temple and everybody, verse number 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw that, he addressed the people. So, Peter and and. John, do this miracle, really Peter does the miracle, to this lame beggar, and people recognize that something is special simply because of that. Now, they're excited, and Peter sees the opportunity to say something, and so he preaches the second sermon in the book of Acts. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though... By our own power or piety we have made Him walk. Because Christians never do anything by their own power or their own religious goodness. Their own piety. Christians never do anything. They never help anyone. They never do anything by their own power or just because they are so religiously astute and so great of, of Christians that they do this. They always do it because of an extension of God's grace. So he says, why, why are you amazed at this? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He decided to release Him. And you denied the Holy and the Righteous One. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We watched it happen. We were all there. In fact, Peter is really one of the disciples that saw it closest. He's the one that was there with Jesus, that was watching him stand in front of Pilate, that of course then uh, someone said, aren't you one of his disciples? And he, he denied it. So you can almost see the, the justification in Peter's wanting to say something because he's been in the situation of the person who, who doesn't speak up. And so now he has the opportunity and he starts speaking up. Verse 16, in the original language, it's this. And by faith, by the faith through his name, by the faith through his name, he himself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now it's not faith, it's the faith. There's a definite article in front of that. In fact, most of the time that you read the word faith in the Bible, there's actually a definite article in front of it. So it's not a noun in, in, in a sense that it's not my faith. It's not a verb in that I have faith or that, that, I'm, that I'm believing this. It's, it's the faith. It's the system of faith. Okay, So the man wasn't healed because he believed in Jesus. The man was healed because of the system of faith that Peter and John were preaching. Because up until this point, we have no justification to believe that this lame man has ever even heard the name Jesus. There's two guys that are walking through the gate of the of the temple, and he asks them for some money. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know who Jesus is or who they are. They're, uh, on the behalf of to preach to the to the people at the temple too he doesn't know any of that all he knows is that there's two men that have presumably have some money because they're going to the temple and in order to go to the temple and to worship you have to you have to pay the temple tax and so he just assumes that they have money and then they say well we don't actually have money we're not actually here to worship because they they weren't using the temple as their means for worship any longer. They were using the temple as the place where people were so we can go preach the gospel to them. And so he says, we don't really have any money, but what we do have, I'll give you. And this man was this man was healed by the faith, the system of faith, because the system of faith that Jesus brought about is one that that brought also the miraculous gifts and allowed these apostles and the early Christians to do these types of miracles. Now, brothers, I know that you acted out of ignorance, verse 17, as you did also your rulers, but God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ, sorry, that His Christ would suffer and thus fulfill. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken... From Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he's He's not asked to speak he sees an opportunity, and he knows that opportunity plus ability equals obligation. And so he speaks. He speaks up, and he, he essentially says much the same thing that he said in Acts chapter two, with just a little differences. First off, of course, he's, he he doesn't go into depth of uh, the Joel chapter two, and this is what was prophesied by Joel, because that, in essence, is is a is a subject that. That the people at the day of Pentecost needed, not necessarily these people, but he preaches much the same sermon, much 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 shorter in fact i don 't know if you 've even called this a sermon, but nonetheless, what is the point of this miracle because they didn 't go to the temple to with the with the specific point of providing a miracle they didn 't get there and and see this man and and talk amongst themselves, and and say, you know, John looks over at Peter and says, you know, it'd probably be good if we healed him. You know, they'd probably listen to us if they healed if we healed him, right? And Peter says, well, I don't know. I mean, do we really need to do that just now? I mean, we're just getting our feet wet. We we've been apostles for like three days now. Um, don't you think we need a little bit more time? John says, Well, I think. I think we should probably do it anyway. They didn't have any of that conversation. It's just, a, it's just a, a spontaneous thing. Some person asks for some money. Now, why did he do it? Why did Peter give this man healing instead of giving him some money? Well, first off, he answers the question. He didn't have any money. But also, because Peter understands the point of miracles. The point of miracles was not a, a deliberate, calculated effort in or, by the apostles in order to provide something. The, the point of miracles was not a, a, a forethought plan by the church in order to provide some sort of benevolent act to their communities or something like that. The point of miracles was rather spontaneous. You look at the first one that happens in John chapter 2. It's really spontaneous. Most of them are spontaneous actions that are there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to give some credit to the person that is saying or preaching at that time. If you look at Acts chapter 15, or sorry, Acts chapter 3, verse 15, he says this You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. First off, the reason why they performed this miracle, really the reason why any miracle was performed at all in the first century, is, is in order to point upward, to, to authenticate what was being said about Jesus. Now, in, at, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, he says this How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Miracles were in essence God's way of divinely signing what was about to be said. It's, it's It's His way of saying if you have two contradictory ideas about Jesus or you have two contradictory ideas about God, which are happening at that point, right? I mean, you look around the ancient world and there's, there's, thousands of different expressions of religion, right? I mean, you look at, for instance, just, just look at Acts chapter fifteen and or Acts seventeen and Paul on Mars Hill. Just, just look at all of the times where Jesus goes to different places, like in Matthew chapter sixteen, and he goes to Caesarea Philippi, and all of the different types of religion and types of gods that people could just choose from. And, and miracles were, were, in essence, God's way of saying, if you have two contradictory ideas about who I am, you need to take the one that is, that is validated by, by miracles. And so he's doing that because at this place that these apostles are now, sadly, those thousands of people that are walking up the steps to the gate called Beautiful are all going to worship God in a contradictory way to the way that the apostles were saying. And so if you have two contradictory statements about God, who God is, then you need to take the one that is validated by miracles. But for thousands of years, after, really, really since the beginning of creation, mankind has filled the gaps of what we know with the answer that it's just a miracle, that any unexplained scientific phenomenon, any unexplained anything is, it ha- was attributed to, well, that's just a miracle. And then about a hundred years ago, and then really about 40 years ago uh, 60 years, 50 to 60 years ago, I guess it became to where um, the, the elite the knowledgeable, the intellectual, the intelligent crowd started saying that no intelligent, intelligent person I can't even say intelligent. Obviously, I'm not that intelligent. Intelli- no intelligent person is ever going to posit that a miracle is somehow a good explanation for anything. And the problem is that both are bad science. That, that Both are bad interpretations of the way that God created the world. One says that everything that we can't explain is a miracle. Well, that misses things that, that God has placed in the created world that, that are beautiful for us to understand. I mean, you think about one thing, okay? For, for about, up until about 120, 150 years ago, people actually believed that, that the way that the Son, not S-O-N, not Jesus, but the Son, the big ball of fire in the sky, that the way that the sun got its power was directly from God. And they just described it to a miracle. Well, it's, it's, just, it's just God doing that. We don't need to look into that. And then we figured out that there's this thing called nuclear fusion. And then we started realizing what we can do with that. You see, if we had left it as just, well, that's God, we would have missed something that God placed in the natural world for us to know and for us to understand and for eventually us to use to the point that now entire cities and entire areas of the United States are, are powered by things like that, right? But then on the other side, you have this idea that nothing can ever be ascribed as a miracle. And what that does is it looks for answers great. But it fails to understand that sometimes there just isn't an answer. Or the answer doesn't make sense. Back up to John chapter 2. How do you make water into wine? Water into the juice of grapes. We're going to assume that the juice, the, the thing that Jesus provided to the people at that wedding feast was unfermented unalcoholic wine. And the reason for that is, is really multifaceted. But there's one where Habakkuk says, woe to you who gives your, your friend or your neighbor alcohol. So you have a problem there. Number two is because just scientifically and historically speaking, that's what they would have had. Okay, so we're going to assume that. How do you take water and turn it into grape juice? How do you turn water into the juice that comes from the grapevine? Well, you have to take a seed and you put it in the ground and you water it. And then that seed takes that water and it it stores that water in cells that then provide um, provide some energy to the cell in order to take sunlight and turn it into sugar, glucose. And then that that plant takes that water and that glucose and it grows and then it grows and it grows and you keep watering it and it keeps growing and you keep watering it and you keep having sun on it and it keeps growing eventually it takes that water that you're giving it and it puts it into this little ball and in that ball it also provides more glucose and some other stuff and and then you take that little ball and you you pluck it from the vine you put it in a bucket and you step on it or you squish it or you do something else and then you have grape juice. So, it's possible to take water and turn it into wine. It absolutely is possible. However, what Jesus does is fill in the gaps and He takes it from that amount of time which and sometimes can be six months to a year or more, and He does it like that. How do you make a lame man healed? Well, you, you take him to the doctor and you have, you have extensive tests run and, and eventually they figure out that it's a problem with blank and then they, they figure out that maybe you can do a surgery on that and, and then maybe, maybe that surgeon is the best in the world and he, he goes in and he does what he needs to do and then you take that man, you put him in rehab and he spends a year and a half learning how to walk. And then eventually he can walk with a walker and then a cane and then eventually with some braces on his legs and then, and then one day he can walk by himself. But the miraculous is when God takes all of that and squishes it into this. Or he, he, he fixes something that couldn't be fixed by a doctor. So just to say that everything is explained by a miracle or anything can't be explained by a miracle is both equally just as wrong. Now, that being said, he's, he's using these miracles not for the foundation of people's faith. He's using the miracles as, as a truth, as a, a buffer, as, as an encouragement for what is actually the foundation of people's faith. If you go back to Acts chapter 3, he says this. When talking about Jesus, uh, where is it? Verse... Um, Verse number, well, where would it go? Hang on a second. There we go. Verse number fifteen. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And through faith, in through the faith in His name, or the through through the faith of His name, He's made this man strong. And then He calls him the holy and the righteous one. In verse fourteen, the miracle wasn't the foundation of people's faith. The miracle was what. The foundation of people's faith was what happened after the miracle. The miracle got their attention. It opened the door for the truth to actually be established in their hearts. It's the same way that we do anything today. When we help someone in a benevolent way and, and as a church or as individuals or whatever, we, we, we help them to, to ease some sort of physical need some sort of earthly need, the reason we're doing that is not to build their faith. It's to open the door to put the thing in their minds that builds their faith, which is the Word of God. You can't have one without the other. And the point of the miracle in Acts 3 is not to get everyone at the temple to obey the Gospel. The point of the miracle in Acts 3 is to get this man... You see, Peter and John don't know what's going to happen after this. They just know that Peter knows, if I, if I heal him, if I give him what he needs right now, he'll be willing to listen to me in just a minute. And then it just so happens that everyone around him is also interested in hearing him in just a minute. So it points upward, but also the point of miracles was to point forward to something that was coming, okay? In, in verse 21, speaking of Jesus, he says, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things, About which God spoken, spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago, and He's He's talking about Isaiah, I believe, when He says that God through His prophets spoke long ago. Mainly, He's talking about Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter thirty-five, verse six. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Or Isaiah 53, verse 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. You see, what Jesus did on the cross was not just not just die for our salvation, but also set up something that's coming that would be beyond imaginable without this yes he brought us salvation which is beyond imaginable without him dying but also you and I live in a world that's just it's just not fun right in the last 36 hours there have been three people who lost their lives in Columbus because of violence we live in a world that is just I'm sick of it Not fun anymore. And what Jesus did is not just save us from our sins, but do something else. Look back at Acts chapter 3 again. Verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His prophets long ago. There's coming a time when, when everything's going to be restored. Isaiah again, verse chapter 11, says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion fattened, uh, and the cat, fattened calf together. All the little child shall, shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young Young shall shall lie down together, so forth. The nursing child shall shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall shall put his hand on the adder's den. That's a, a venomous snake. See the picture that Isaiah is painting in in chapter eleven is this time where there's no bad thing at all. That little children are going to play around cobras and adders. Um. That that. Lions are going to sleep next to goats. That that people are going to be... Well, back to chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall shout for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. There's coming this time when everything's going to be okay again. That's what Peter is alluding to in chapter 3 of the book of Acts into this, this quick sermonette, if you will. And what he's saying is you're looking at a man who you have known for years to be sitting at the gate of the temple because he can't walk. By the way, to get to the gate called beautiful, you would have to walk up a lot of stairs. In fact, to get to any of the gates of the temple, you would have to walk up a lot of stairs, which is, which is interesting because um, when you think about the picture of a person who is, who is praying or who is worshiping, okay? So when you're teaching your kids how to worship, What do you teach them how to do? Close your hands, close your eyes, and bow your head, right? That's just how we teach them. Because that's traditionally what we've taught kids and what we've taught ourselves for years. Where did the bowing of the heads come? Bowing of the head came because when you were walking to the temple, you had to walk up all of these flights of stairs. And when you walk up stairs... For the most part, you bend over because you're making sure that you aren't tripping over the next stair unless you're not like me and you can just run upstairs and not have to look at the flights. I have to look. Did I ever tell you the story about one time um, one of the the guys who was leading in worship um, said something. I don't remember what it was, but it was kind of funny. And so while I was walking up onto the stage or whatever you call this thing... um, While I was walking up, I I said a little joke to him. And um, as I was saying that joke, I kicked the top stair right here. It wasn't at this building, but I kicked the top stair right here and face-planted. Just right there. So, when you're walking upstairs, you have to bend over. So that's where the bowing down when you're praying and that sort of idea came from. Now, back to what we were talking about. In order to get to the gate called Beautiful someone had to carry him up there. And chances are, somebody has seen that instance happening. And Peter is using the stories and the the pictures that Isaiah painted way back when, and he's using what they had seen. They had seen this man carried to this gate every day. They had seen him sitting there over and over and over again. These people knew him. Even, even so much so that in Acts three, when when they see it happening, look at verse number eleven. While while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran to them in the in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. They're they're excited. They they're overcome with emotions. And he says, "You know, we live in a world where people are lame, where people are physically." Hurt, and have physical issues, and um, there's going to come a time when that doesn't happen anymore. You need to repent, because you're Jews, and that means that you had a hand in. Maybe you didn't scourge him. Maybe you didn't put the nail through his hand. Maybe you didn't lead him away. Maybe you weren't one of the people at at uh, Pont uh, at Pilate's house that were screaming, crucify Him, crucify Him. Maybe you weren't any of that. But just because of your religion, you were signing off on it, you need to repent. And you need to understand that there's going to come a time when when there's not going to be any problems like this anymore. You see, the miracle that happened in Acts 3 wasn't just to get some guy to leave Peter alone. It was Peter saw an opportunity and, and eventually got the chance to speak to people that that realistically we don't we don 't really know how many people obeyed the gospel, look at chapter four verse one as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon him, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. see the the Sadducees knew it, the priests knew it. Now, the Sadducees didn't like it because they didn't believe that you would ever be resurrected from the dead. The priests didn't like it because, well, it looked bad on them that they couldn't help this man when Peter and John could. But they knew that what he was talking about was the resurrection from the dead. They knew that what Peter was preaching on, what Peter was telling these people about was a time when everything's going to be fixed. They understood what he was talking about when he was hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 11 and so forth. And they arrested them, put them in the custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So you mean to tell me, we don't know what exact number, but we do know that it was, it was a good number. It was a lot. Over 5,000. You mean to tell me that in how many verses? 25 verses, really 24 verses, Peter was able to convert over 5,000 people in 24 verses. If we're going to convert 5,000 people today, we're going to need a couple hundred thousand dollars to rent out a giant facility. We're going to need advertising. We're going to, we need all this stuff. We need all these people. We need to get the people there. How are we going to get them there? Maybe we need to do a TV. Maybe we're going to come up with this massive plan on how to convert people. And all it took for Peter to convert that many people was seeing an opportunity, using the power within his power, whatever that was, to, to help someone And because of that, people obey the gospel. Now, I'm not claiming anything about that. if we help people or if we show people who we are by our works or anything else that that 5,000 people are going to obey the gospel. What I am saying is that if we do what they did, there's no reason to assume that the the outcome will be any different. And we don't have miracles today. I understand that. In fact, I know that for of certainty because even if you look in the book of Acts, from the beginning to the end, the miracles are even waning in the book of Acts. As time progresses, the miracles are getting less and less and less. Why? Because they weren't going to be there forever. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the same ability. Maybe we don't have the same ability in the same way. Now, Brings us to our last point. The most important thing was not the miracle. The most important thing in Acts 3 was not the healing of the lame man. The most important thing in Acts 3 was what was to be the foundation of these people's faith. He didn't just listen and walk off. He did a miracle to open their hearts, to open their eyes, to get them to listen. And then He gave them real, fundamental, foundational ideas about who Jesus was. And then he said, you need to repent. As bad as physical pain is, there's something much worse than, than a, a lame man, and that is the people, anyone, being spiritually crippled. He used that to open their minds to give them real fundamental teaching. And that is that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus did die and that Jesus is coming back. You know, I wish that we had miraculous gifts today. Cuz men would make it a whole lot easier. But we don't. What we do have is the capability to tell people about who he is if we will see the opportunity as we go through the book of Acts over the next few months, you're going to notice it wasn't the same situation in every time. In fact, very rarely... I don't know what happened there. Very rarely do people obey the Gospel because they came to a worship service. Very rarely in the book of Acts do people obey the Gospel because of a pre-thought-out plan that was that was executed effectively and flawlessly. In fact, most of the time that people obey the Gospel, it's because Paul wanted to go somewhere and the Holy Spirit told him, no, you're going here, and he just had to go by the, you know, just off the cuff. Because he was looking for opportunities. Peter's looking for opportunities. The way you convert the world is not by putting together some million-dollar plan The way you convert the world is to look for the opportunities to tell people about it. Use what they're thinking about to teach them what they need to be thinking about. If you need to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand. Gary's going to lead us in a Psalm of encouragement.